Welcome to On Farm Trials. I'm your host, Carol McFarland, with the PNW Farmers Network. The usual focus of this podcast is to dig into on-farm experimentation by visiting farms and talking with growers about what they are trying in their dryland grain production systems of the inland Pacific Northwest. In this way, we hope to share lessons learned and advance cropping systems innovation. In our interviews, we heard a lot from our producers about many different kinds of on-farm trials. So we're bringing you this special bonus episode so you can hear their stories from the field. I'm the fifth generation. I want this farm to be around for my kids should they choose to farm. So what can I do to put us on the right path for that happening? You know, I look, I look at each field on a, a case-by-case and year-by-year basis and try and decide, you know, what is it I'm trying to address in this field? What are its challenges? What are its strengths? You know, and that affects things like my crop rotation choices, my herbicide choices, and just overall management. The farm has been no-till since about uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, you know, my, my dad started that, and I kind of, you know, picked up the torch where he, he left off and have continued down that path, you know, trying to take things to, to the next level, take those next steps, um, just to kind of see. It's, it's a process of continual improvement. So it's, it's about the journey, not the destination. And uh, one of the challenges I've run into with no-till in a dryland environment is uh, what I call the no-till suck cycle which is where when you have a piece of ground, which could be as small as a half an acre or as large as a whole, whole field, where you don't, you don't get a good stand. And then the next year, you don't have a lot of residue left, which makes it harder to get a stand the next crop around. And then this, this cycle repeats itself, and it, it becomes very difficult to break. Yeah, I think one of the things that frustrates me most when talking to other growers you know, about things they've tried is you get different fields, different years, and I got totally different results. How, how can you expect to learn anything if you, you can't control your variables? And so you know, when I do my trials, I really try to control as many of the variables as possible. I, I do a lot of strip trials, try and get some replications in there. And then uh, things like I, I have scales on my bank out wagon, which has been amazing. The, the yield monitor in the combine is really good, but it is definitely not a scale. And so that helps me go out there and get good data for my results. Well, I think I think the word's gotten out that I'm a glutton for punishment when it comes to these kind of things. So <laughs> I've worked with Richard's uh, community in the past to do uh, cover crop trials, and that was really informative. Uh, unfortunately, cover crop doesn't seem to be real applicable to my area just yet, but learning that, I mean, a lot of times learning that something doesn't work is just as valuable as learning that it does. And so there's been lots of opportunities in the past where I've worked with the research community to help kind of figure things out such as that. And that, that's probably like the, the one off the top of my head that jumps out to me the most was the cover crop trials. But I've also done a lot of variety trials, um, which those are always interesting, um, mostly with canola. Uh, we've, we've done some experiments with uh, piola in the past, which also has been very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that someone's going to continue that research going forward because I feel like that's a crop that has has potential for this area. You know, I, I, I want to have robust soil biology because I think that, that helps me in the long run. You know, if you take care of the soil, it'll take care of you. Um, let's me incorporate things in the soil that I haven't been able to do in the past. You know, we've been considering looking at compost tea going forward. And so, you know, that's something I'd like to experiment with. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think the big thing is is acknowledging that it's not dirt, it's soil. It's it's a living, breathing thing too, and so you you need to be cognizant of what it needs and trying to take care of it. I think we'd always like to simplify things down to the point it's like, okay, this practice is good or bad. Should I do this or should I not? And it, it it's not that simple. Uh, a lot of these practices they might be the right thing to do eighty percent of the time, or fifty percent of the time. And so it, it's not as simple as does this work or is this the right thing to do? It's figuring out when does this work? When is this the right thing to do? How can I know? And you know, the hard part is a lot of this is determined by what kind of year we have from a weather standpoint. And you're not gonna know whether something was the right thing to do until long after it's already been done. So you know, I, I try and look at things and you know, assign values. What is the probability this is the right thing to do? What is the benefit going to be? What is the cost going to be, whether it's successful or unsuccessful in that particular year, you know, and try and weigh all those things out and, and chart a path that way. Uh, you know, I would be curious to try uh, sort of like different crops, um, sunflowers. I think those are really great. You know, the limitation right now is they don't have any on-farm storage. And so when you harvest those, I, I can't just haul them into my local elevator that's five miles away. So they, they have to go to Spokane, that's at least an hour and a half away. So without on-farm storage, there's really no way for me to, to grow those. Um, we started getting in, into no-till in maybe 2017. We purchased some ground that had previously been no-tilled. It had been in CRP for 20 years, 25 years. The owner then pulled it out and leased it to a guy that no-tilled. So it went right from CRP into no-till. And then the owner decided to sell and we ended up purchasing it and continued with the no-till. And so that was our first no-till experience. And it was very exciting to me because I'd been attending uh, different grower meetings about no-till and, and that kind of thing. And I had asked my husband about, why don't we no-till? And, and he said, well, in the 80s, him and his dad watched people go broke no-tilling. And so it was hard for him to fathom that it could actually work. Well, in those years, they've really, the technology has come a long way between the drills that they use, the types of seed that we have that they they utilize now. Maybe even just the type of knowledge we can share. Yes, yes exactly. Because if we hadn't been, go if, if I hadn't been going to some of the grower meetings about this, I never would have brought it back to my husband saying, this can work, this can work. And it works, it works. But we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket. So we still do um, some conventional farming, but we also do redu reduced tillage too, like a two-pass, or yeah, two-pass farming. So we go anywhere from no-till to a two-pass to conventional. You have got an interesting story about how you came in to be a farm, you call yourself a farm her, right? Farm her, yes. Um, and, farm her. and do you want to tell just the, the quick story about how you came to be on this farm? I lived in the Spokane area and I had met this guy gathering cattle on a, a ranch because I did horse cutting. So I had met him gathering cattle and I was a hairdresser. But I had also grown up on a, on a farm. I mean, we were dairy farmers when I was a kid. My dad is an agronomist or was an agronomist. He's retired now. So I'd 
known about farming. We had a small alfalfa farm. We had raised some cattle, um, pigs. But when I, I got invited to go gather cattle down here in the La Crosse area because I was my trainer was in Dusty. I've done a couple of cover crops and actually one year and very small small acres and I think you told me that this is called your granola patch he calls it my granola patch yes it is my granola patch so you ran your cows on the granola patch. I did run my cows on the granola patch so I did intercropping the very first year the variety of wheat I plant is called Mila M-E-L-A and it's it's a very drought tolerant wheat they plant it more in the maybe seven to nine inch rainfall and I thought I'm gonna plant something out there that's more drought tolerant because I am planting planting it with things that are gonna take some of the moisture, right? Let me just tell you, you don't put the cattle out on your crop until the wheat is big enough to tolerate the cattle being on it and pulling it up by the roots. <laughs> because we ended up having to seed it twice because they ate all the wheat first before mm. they ate the rest of my cover crop. I, we have a friend that has a weeded sprayer that they have decreased the amount of chemical they buy by over 90%. That's a, that is a hell of a lot of money to save. Even, you know, those weeded sprayers cost you, not, not considering what the sprayer itself costs, but just this, the system to put on your sprayer is like 1500 bucks a foot. Okay, when you have even a 100 foot sprayer, that's $150,000. Yeah, they're not cheap. It's nice that the conservation programs seem to be able to help offset some yep. of those costs. It's very helpful that they do offset the cost of new technology. And it's not just that technology. Like, I'm sure that our district would help somebody pay for a drone sprayer or a drone mapper and set up a system like we're doing, but we're doing it through the RCS instead. My great-grandfather uh, uh, came here to this area uh, back in 1894. He actually didn't settle where we're standing today. Um, he settled about eight miles east of here. Um, and so that was original farmstead. And so my longtime employee, he actually uh, lives there at that farm. And the uh, farm that we're at today, my uh, grandfather uh, purchased like in 1901. And I um, uh, feel very blessed that they decided to uh, settle here. At I had a really good time meeting um, Carl, your hired man, who has uh -huh. been with your family since he was no, 16, 16 um, and is now 80 years old. Yep, still work, still productive, and he knows a lot. So, I, hard worker. That's a good guy he's, to have around. Yeah, he's uh, kind of like a uh, mentor to me growing up. Um, Someone will have big shoes to fill, I'm sure. Too. Yeah, I've I've had a hard time uh, finding that person. You know, it's uh, you talked with other farmers, um, uh, farmers that I uh, uh, work with, and it's a uh, uh, constant struggle uh, finding finding employees and it'll be it'll be different 15 years ago started doing a variable rate application and um, you know, I reduced um, fertilizer inputs another 15% and I got that ground truth 
by um, um, a research program that I was in. It was part of the uh, REACH project. It was uh, called the Site-Specific Climate-Friendly Farming uh, project and um, it was in 10 acres. They had 22 monitoring stations within that 10 acres and uh, really showed that what I was doing with variable rate was uh, right on that like my nitrogen use efficiency was uh, 80% and I mean usually if you're 50% I mean, that's what the you know, gold standard is and so um, by you know reducing your nitrogen and putting it where you need it i think that really is what increases the efficiency there with it so it was, it was um, a great project to be involved with um, got just a tremendous amount um, out of it and uh, but then here going forward uh, just doing things to increase the soil health uh, you know cover crops using more you know, natural products, and then just trying to reduce that uh, fertilizer rate uh, further uh, then as well. And, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get to the point of not, not you know, having synthetic fertilizer. I just don't think that's practical. I mean, we might have to at some point, um, but um, at least not maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe. I wanna make sure that my you know, yields are, are increasing and um, not really going after the uh, you know, top yield. That's not, not my goal is, is to be the highest yielding grower in the Genesee area, which is tough to do because it's a <laughs> pretty competitive uh, area to be farming in and good, good soil. And um, you know, it's really focusing on the marginal rate of return. And that's where the you know, reducing the the fertilizer and still getting a, an average yield is um, my focus right now. Carl Coopers and, and Fred Fleming, who uh, started the company um, uh, over 20 years ago, really, you know, they were cutting edge way ahead of their time with the, the concepts behind Shepherd's Grain you know, being a, a sustainable, um, identity preservation now everyone wants to know where the food comes from well i mean we they did that from from the start and every pound of flour was you would be able to find out which farm you know that bag of flour came from so having that verification and then having a a, a third party uh, verification with uh, all the growers to ensure that they're you know, practicing sustainable uh, production methods, that they are you know, treating their employees um, well, and then also having a wildlife uh, preservation component uh, to their farm. There's a lot in between the field and the eaters that, that makes a big difference in cropping systems innovation. And it does seem like Shepherd's Grain was trying to take some of that stuff on. And, um, and also, from what I understand, really try to tie your market price to the cost of production a bit more closely. From what I understand, the third party certification that you mentioned is the Farm Smart still? 
Uh, or is it no, it, uh, uh, we're still doing it, uh, doing it with food, food Alliance. Thanks for reminding about the yeah cost of production. That's another uh, real uh, cornerstone uh, that base the uh, price of our wheat uh, flour on is on the cost of production, and um, uh, it's a very important part of the successful model that uh, has been created there. Trying to make things pencil out is tough, so it's. It's better if you can just figure out how to, you know, grow a good crop, I think, and increase organic matter, just resources of where we're getting that lime from. And he, he thought that maybe the sugar beet lime that he was using at the time probably wasn't the best quality lime either, but it, it definitely comes down to logistics and trucking and that, all of that just isn't cheap. And you, know, you got to make it, you know, feasible and you know, to take wheat ground, to turn it from, you know, 50 bushel ground into 60 bushel ground, you're still limited on rainfall. We're not in an irrigated area. So we're, we're never really going for top yield. As far as that goes, we're really trying to manage input costs in our area and basically create the best net profit we can per acre. And so a lot of that comes down to managing, you know, uh, fertilizer inputs, chemical inputs, and still trying to get you know a, a maximum yield out for what those inputs are but we're never going for you know a max yield or trying to out yield our neighbor per se and also on that we're also trying to protect our soil health going forward too so we know that you know there's a lot of antagonistic effects that will happen if you are trying to you know say fertilize for top yield but if i can maybe you know cut back say 10, 20% on a fertilizer input to maybe not salt out my soils as heavily, protect organic matter, those kind of things. That actually helps me out net a better profit into those following years. So those are factors that we're taking into consideration just because we have such sensitive soils in our area and you know the limited rainfall where we're at too. Of the 42 landlords, we got most of them are all super cool people. So uh, we, we don't we don't farm for them unless we have a good relationship with them and we, they seem to be pretty understanding and and uh, we've created great relationships going forward so well it sounds like you're in a position where you're really thinking about investing a lot in the ground that you're working on so yeah yeah they like knowing they like seeing the cover crops people always ask questions about the cover crops we're doing they love seeing that you know when's our field going to be in a cover crop and uh those are those are fun conversations to have you know what is that growing out there and you know oh my gosh there's so many bugs and so many butterflies and the birds love it and um we love the wildlife and yeah so fun stuff yeah so we've been staying pretty consistent with this mix of uh radishes turnips phacelia sunflowers mung beans cow peas field peas um sweet clover and you know primarily like when we were looking at things and we were trying to address a resource concern in our field, we're dealing with, you know, years of um, plow pans and, and um, you know, the same type of crops, wheat on wheat on wheat rotations. And the radishes were something that we saw really breaking up those hard pans for us. Those roots going down, you know, four or five feet, pulling up nutrients from, you know, years gone past, you know, stuff that the we just wouldn't go down and get anymore and having really good results after having these radishes out there. But the radishes do better if we have a lot of other stuff with it. It seems like just as we've done a straight cover crop of radishes, it didn't turn out that well. Um, and when you plant 
a diverse mix. One thing I would tell you know listeners on this podcast is do do a whole field of cover crop and see what happens. You know, because most of the pollutants I think is pretty varying soil types, varying terrain, and if they put a pretty diverse mix out there, you know, get your brassicas. I I've kept grasses out of my mix just from a management standpoint, but do some cool seasons, do some warm seasons and, uh, you know, do some legumes, do some brassicas. Don't put a cover crop in just to fix nitrogen, you know, focus on, you know, breaking up a hard pan or, you know, creating, you know, biological diversity or something like that in your soil besides just fixing nitrogen. Cause of all the guys I've heard, of, you know, we did, we, you know, we did field peas, we did clover, you know, it, it failed. It burned up moisture. Do something diverse and get get a big mix out there. And I think you'll be amazed at what you see take off in different parts of the field. You said phacelia. Mm-hmm. That's not something that I've heard always in some of these mixed cover crop blends. Can you talk a little bit about your choice of adding that in? I'd seen in a few other people's mixes of how it really helped with just diversity and biology in the soil and the pollinators also liked it. And so I'm like, okay, we'll try it. Turns out it, it worked great. So for our soil type and in our situation, it worked out worked out good. So we've kept it in there every year now. I've seen it as a, a great pollinator. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful plant. Yep, but easy to control too. It's not it's not invasive. All right, Chris, do you have kids? I do have kids. I have four girls. Do they like to farm? They do. Yeah, they do like to farm. They, they love spending time out on the tractor and being out in the field and seeing the plants and all that. So, yeah. do, do you think they'll farm? I hope so. Yeah. Do you I think, hope so. Do you think things will be different on your farm and in the ag space when it's their turn? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I hope that it's a positive environment. I hope that people learn to talk more and have more of these conversations and, and not be so polarized on, you know, their ideas of how farming should be. So. Great. Well, we have one of your girls here with us right now, don't we? We do. Uh, we were talking a little bit about farming and you had a question for her. So Eva, in your opinion, what do you like better? Do you like farming with like tractors and machines or do you like farming with animals more? Uh, I think I like farming with tractors more Yeah. just because they smell a lot better <laughs> and you can go on a vacation and you don't have to worry about if they have enough food or water. Okay. So that's, that's great. I, I think that's probably a shared sentiment along among a lot of farmers. Now your sister had a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah. Charlotte, Charlotte definitely enjoys the animal aspect the fact that they have babies and you know they're making noise and all of that so yeah eva do you like the cover crops i do like i like going out and collecting all the sunflowers and then we like to eat the radishes so that's really fun are you going to come back to the farm yeah or just just never leave (laughs) probably come back it's a good plan Awesome. Well, maybe I'll come back. Hopefully I'll be back in like, you know, 20 years and be like, what are you trying on the farm? (laughs) Hopefully you keep the legacy going. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing today and for being on the podcast. Yeah. We've got Charlotte here. Hey, Charlotte. So what do you think? You like farming better with tractors or animals? Animals. What do you like about the animals? 
there's baby sheep and they're so fluffy. <laughs> yeah, so we did have sheep at one point, and uh, we might be getting sheep back on our farm again. So awesome. Do you think you're going to come back and be a farmer? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so Allison, I'm going to ask you now Would you rather farm crops with tractors or pastures with animals? Tractors mm. with crops. Really? Okay. All right. Why is that? Because I like riding in tractors and when I, I like to drive combines. Oh, when okay. it's like harvest. All right. Do you like to work on tractors? Yeah. Yeah? Do you like the wrench and the grease and all of that? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Except for when they break down. Mm, that's true. Do you think you're going to come back and farm when you're a grown up? Yeah. Yeah? Awesome. Good luck. Okay, Penny, I'm going to ask you now. You like tractors better or animals better? Uh, animals. What do you like better about animals? Horses. Oh, you like horses. Okay. So you want to be a cowgirl? Yeah. Yeah. So you really are all farming together, aren't you? Uh, for the most part, yeah. Yep. It's a good place to be. Yeah. As always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.